Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Eleni Jokos in for Julia Chatley. This is First Move, and here's what you need to know. Slowing but growing third quarter US GDP numbers come in slightly better than expected, and a rate cut countdown. Uh, markets expected, but what happens next is anyone's guess. And GE was General Electric stocks jump as the company beats expectations on the earnings front. It's Wednesday, time to make a move. First move, really good to have you with us today and a slew of economic data that we are digesting at the moment. Lots of earnings as well from corporate America and of course that rate cut decision coming up later uh, today. So a lot to get through. So let's take a look at those third quarter US GDP numbers coming in at 1.9%, slightly better than markets had expected. In fact, people were talking about a number closer to 1.6%. So closer to 2% is good news. Uh, it is weaker than what we saw in the second quarter of this year. We also had U.S. jobs numbers showing that private employers added 125,000 jobs over that same month. Um, and of course, it is better than the 100,000 that people were anticipating. But what's interesting is that in September, there was a huge uh, revision downwards by 45,000 jobs. So that is going to be interesting to see how that impacts the numbers, uh, the non-farm payroll numbers that we're expecting to come through on Friday. Now, the Fed is going to be pouring over all of this data uh, ahead of its policy meeting later today. An interest rate decision is expected just five hours from now. As investors await the Fed, it's looking like a mostly flat open for U.S. stocks, and that's after a lower close on Tuesday. The S&P pulled back from record highs in the previous session. The Nasdaq fell over half a percent. Stocks fell amid fears that a U.S.-China trade deal might take longer than expected to sign, and nervousness ahead of today's Fed decision is also playing quite a big role as well. After the closing bell, uh, we will, of course, uh, get profit reports from the likes of Apple and even Facebook. So a lot of things to get through today, and we'll keep you updated on all the latest insights. Now we've got Christine Romans joining us to unpack some of the economic data that we've seen. So slightly better than expected on yeah. the third quarter GDP. Is this good news? I mean, I know that we were expecting a lower number, but look, again, it's below 2%. It's below 2%. It's below 2% for the first time since the end of 2018. It's yeah. two quarters in a row of deceleration and growth. That hasn't happened in a decade. So in the summer, you saw these concerns that began in the spring. You saw them continue. So uh, I would say that you're looking at an economy here that is running cooler, um, certainly, than the White House uh, forecast has been, certainly cooler than the, the president has wanted. As one economist uh, just emailed me, this isn't, this isn't the economy driving into a ditch, but it's the engine is tired this late in the bull cycle. Let me show you what, what it looks like, Eleni, because I think it's important to look at the, at the long trend here. Below 2%, you can see below the, the first quarter numbers. Uh, you can see there was some activity earlier in the year, but that whatever that, that boost was earlier in the year seems to have faded a bit. Uh, and as you stretch back, you can see how difficult it has been for the economy uh, on a quarter basis to be able to stick above 3%. Now, when you look at annual numbers. We know for the year last year, 2.93% was the annual number. Still having difficulty uh, really blowing out of the water those numbers we saw during the Obama administration.
administration, which has been, of course, a promise of this president, Eleni. Yeah. So we also had ADP numbers coming through and better than expected. But interesting to see that we saw a big revision downwards in September. That coupled with these, you know, economic numbers, do you think that the market's now definitely expecting a rate cut? Uh, I think there's today. I think there's a couple of things going on here. You have the Boeing Max problem. Boeing is a huge part of the American economy yeah. and a huge part of the labor force. GM, the GM strike, there's going to be some noise from that. So you really have to look at the trends. And that's what the Fed looks at. And this afternoon, we will hear from the Fed. Later today, we will hear from the Fed. And we will find out if the Fed's going to cut interest rates, 25 basis points, the third rate cut uh, in a row here. Uh, what I really want to know is what the Fed is seeing about the trade war, about slowing global growth, and what the Fed uh, is going to hint about doing uh, going forward. If you continue to see a deceleration in GDP and specifically this business investment number in here, it shows you that yeah. businesses have grown quite nervous and they're not spending the money you would have thought they'd spend uh, with those big tax cuts, right? So the effects of the tax cuts are cooling. The consumer is still strong. What's the Fed going to say about it? What is the yeah. Fed telegraph for down the road? You, look, the guys here on Wall Street, they're expecting a rate cut. I mean, oh, sure. I think they will be very disappointed if they don't get one. And of course, with the uncertainty with China, and, of course, with economic growth. Do you think the Fed should be this proactive or do you think they're going to be losing out on all their tools uh, for, you know, well, sort of a later date? That is the debate, Eleni, of the moment. It really is because um, you've got the president demanding that the Fed even go to zero rates, right? Uh, the Fed sort yeah. of waxing poetic about, look at Japan, look at Europe. They have negative <laughs> rates. People get paid, <laughs> get paid to invest their money. That is a sign of distress. The president also tweeting that this is the best American economy in history. You, can you have both at the yeah. same time, the best American economy in history, and you want negative rates? So the Fed is walking this tightrope right in the middle, Not doesn't want to give up all of its tools. You've got to have flexibility if something happens and you do have a recession. These numbers I see here are not recessionary. This is still an economy that's yeah. growing. That's important to say. But that growth is slowing. It's petering out and, and the, puts the Fed in a very difficult position. Well, I mean, they should also look at what happens if you keep rates low for too long. But anyway, we'll talk about that another day if and when a bubble emerges. Thank you so very much, Christine <laughs> Romans. Much appreciated for your time. Thanks. And now we're moving on to another story and uh, a merger in the works. Fiat Chrysler is in the market for a mega merger, now in talks for a tie-up with France's PSA Group, which owns Peugeot. If the merger does go ahead, we're talking about creating one of the world's largest automakers. We've got Anna Stewart standing by with all the details. And we've seen this kind of consolidation happening with the auto space. And PSA has been at the forefront of that. Now they're eyeing mm -hmm. out more. Can they get it done? And do you think the French government is going to approve this deal? Oh, a lot of questions there. I mean, it's been discussed today as a, a marriage of equals, but we're so far from either side saying I do. Now, it would create a company worth some $50 billion. And the reason it makes sense is Fiat Chrysler really needs to scale up in Europe. And likewise, Peugeot doesn't have nearly enough of a presence in the United States. So on that sense, it works. Possibly doesn't address uh, Chinese sales, but we'll leave that to one side. Like all car makers, and we've seen so much consolidation in the space in the last few months, the last few years, um, like so many car makers, it needs to spend more on R&D. And to do that, it needs scale. It needs power. They may not realize the profits from all this technology and they're having to fight against all the big tech giants for many years to come. However, we have been here before. Of course, we saw Fiat Chrysler trying to buy Renault earlier in the year. Those talks broke up in June. And I just want to read you, Eleni, what Fiat Chrysler said when those talks broke up. They said, it has become clear that the political conditions in France do not currently exist for such a combination to proceed successfully. Sure, we're talking about Peugeot, different company, but it's still French.
Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so I mean, the regulator is going to be really important uh, as well in the greater scheme of things, Anna. What are we hearing on that front? Well, that's the biggest risk here. Will politics get away in the way yeah. again? I mean, France owns a 12% stake in Peugeot, slightly less than it did in, with Renault, but it's still fairly sizable. They're likely, the French government, to want some sort of protection on jobs should this deal progress any further. And it's still very, very early stages at the moment. Um, of course, if France, the state, wants their car makers to succeed, they're going to have to support some sort of consolidation in the future. This is how they're going to survive the R&D wars that are already beginning really. Um, with Renault, perhaps the added complication was the Renault-Nissan alliance, and that was under so much pressure following the arrest of Carlos Ghosn. So in that sense, perhaps this marriage, this relationship is slightly less complicated. Eleni? Yeah, I mean, I'm just looking at the market cap of these companies. A uh, French company has 23.6 billion uh, euro market cap. F FCA sits at around $22 billion. I mean, it looks like it's, as you say, uh, a merger of equals. But what kind of price points are we looking at here? Do we have any details? on that. It's too early to say. Currently, all we know that talks are ongoing. And it's interesting to hear that talks have really probably been ongoing all year. They just paused while uh, Fiat flirted a little with Renault. But, of course, that fell apart. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what we hear in the rumour mill from the French government before I think we get to any kind of price point here. Is it worth these talks going any further? Eleni? All right. Anna Stewart, thank you very much for that update and uh, those insights. So a Dow original that looked down and out is making a comeback. And it's in the form of really strong earnings. General Electric defying grim expectations on its outlook and shares are up more than 8%. Take a look at that. We've got Matt Egan joining us now. And Matt, just looking at these numbers and one of the things that people like to look at as a gauge of efficiency is of course just how much free cash flow they have. And that's sitting at around $650 million. They're saying that's going to increase down the line as well. It's got investors really excited, but how are they going to get this right? <laughs> well, listen, everyone loves a comeback story, and GE yeah. seems determined to give us just that. There were some major obstacles facing the company and facing all companies. I mean, there was the global economic slowdown, there's the trade war, and there's this Boeing 737 MAX crisis. But despite that, GE posted results this morning that really wowed investors. I think there were three really important positives. One, earnings and revenue beat expectations. Two, they stopped burning cash. GE actually, as you mentioned, generated $650 million of industrial free cash flow. And GE expressed confidence in the future. Um, they are now projecting up to $2 billion of industrial free cash flow in 2019. And that's because they expect the power business to do better. Now, the CEO, Larry Kolb, who was brought in a, about a year ago to turn around this company, he said that these results really do show that they're making progress on this transformation. But we should really kind of caution people that despite the really dramatic increase in the stock price pre-market, it's not like GE is firing on all cylinders right now. Uh, the power business posted um, another loss. They continue to really get hurt by this shift away from fossil fuels in favor of renewable energy like solar and wind. Um, they also have aviation. That business suffered a slowdown in orders, and that's because of the 737 MAX crisis, which is obviously the plane has been grounded. Also of the healthcare and renewable energy businesses, they've been hit uh, by higher costs related to tariffs. So all in all, GE is certainly showing some progress, but I think the CEO yeah, so summed it up best during the conference call. He said, um, make, no mis make no mistake, we still have work to do. 
Yeah, I mean, we know that they have been trying to run an efficient business, but the, on the aviation front, this is where it does get interesting because they're warning about that. But when you look at the sale of engines, um, we've seen that up around 50%, which is far better than people had anticipated despite the impact of Boeing. Why do you think they're still giving out such a pessimistic tone? Is that kind of a, th a hint of things to come with their relationship with Boeing? Yeah, you know, I, I think it's a, it's a really tricky situation. GE is saying that they are working very closely with Boeing and the airlines to try to get the plane um, back up in the air. And I think in the near term, it is causing a cash headwind for GE due to the timing here. Um, but, you know, bigger picture, the aviation business is the bright spot at GE. And, and it's really been a booming business industry wide for several years. But some of the analysts that I've talked to have said it, it's hard to see how aviation gets much better from here. Um, even though it's been a strong business, it does face headwinds, particularly given the slowdown in the economy. And if there's any sort of a recession, we could see an even sharper slowdown. So that's one of the problems facing GE is that its brightest business um, might not really have that much more room to grow. Great stuff. Thank you very much, Matt Egan. Much appreciated. All right, time now to take a look at stories making headlines around the world. California is bracing for winds of up to 115 kilometers per hour and extremely low humidity. Conditions that authorities say will make the raging wildfires even harder to contain. It's the first time ever the U.S. National Weather Service has issued an extreme red flag signaling potentially historic fire conditions. CNN has obtained the opening remarks of two U.S. State Department officials who will testify in front of impeachment investigators today. The officials are expected to describe influence Rudy Giuliani, President Trump's personal attorney, has had on U.S. policy with the Ukraine. A short while ago, the U.K. Prime Minister addressed Parliament hours after lawmakers uh, voted to hold a December snap election. Uh, meanwhile, a new report says Minister, um, uh, Mr. Johnson's Brexit deal would cost the U.K. economy around $90 billion over the next decade. We've got Nick Robertson joining us live now. This isn't the first time we've actually heard the, the impact that it's going to have on the economy. The IMF is talking about, uh, you know, 3 to 5 percent uh, drop in GDP in the UK. These are stark numbers that politicians are going to have to absorb heading into the election that's coming up in December. And these are numbers that the government has been keen to avoid. Uh, they were asked uh, specifically to give their, the numbers from their own assessments of what Brexit was going to mean. I mean, currently, uh, the, the, the current assessment now, not the government one, but the figures that the, that the Treasury actually has in hand, uh, two and a half percentage points down now compared to um, 2016. If Brexit hadn't happened, the economy would be two and a half percentage points better off. And that big figure you're talking about, the 90 billion, well, in 10 years' time, the, 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 uh, the outlook would be for three and a half percentage points yeah. worse than it is now. So these are stark figures. And absolutely, these are going to be critical in the campaigning here with essentially Prime Minister's question time today, very fiery between uh, Boris Johnson and the leader of the opposition, Jeremy Corbyn, and both sides, unsurprisingly, setting out their uh, election agendas. Boris Johnson, clear on his. Yeah, and this is interesting, Nick. We are going to deliver a fantastic deal by which this country will come out of the European Union. A deal that he has tried to block and that we will deliver. That is the future for this country. Drift and dither under the Labour Party or taking Britain forward to a brighter future under the Conservatives. That is the choice this country faces. 
Yeah, and he went on to say that uh, under Labour, the, the economy would be even worse off. The Labour uh, leader, for his part, uh, reposted with quite simply that the Conservative Party is the party that will, uh, you know, give tax benefits to the rich. It's the workers who are being uh, gr more greatly affected that they will be worse off. He, he said that under, a, you know, a Boris Johnson Brexit deal, the National Health Service, which is getting a lot of scrutiny at the moment, the National Health Service um, would be part of a Trump trade deal. Prices of medicines would go up, he said. The Prime Minister said that isn't the case. But we can clearly see the economy, workers' rights, and that Britain's National Health Service are going to be some of the central issues, as well as that sort of towering issue of Brexit and uh, running in parallel in what's going to be a very heated campaign. Exactly. It's going to be election campaign, as you say. You know, let's just go through some of the top priorities that Britons want to hear about and what they think is going to be important in making their final decision. At the end of the day, some people feel that this is basically kind of a, a proxy decision on whether Brexit should happen or not. You know, there's deep uh, disquiet on the backbenches of both the major parties because they, there are MPs within the Labour Party and Conservative Party who believe that their leaders are taking a gamble by going into the election. There's no certain outcome here that, it, that the country is deeply divided. The Labour Party, if you look at its traditional base, some of them want to leave, some of them want to remain. I think we can expect for that reason the Labour Party to campaign on more traditional issues. We've heard uh, Boris, <coughs> excuse me, Boris Johnson already articulate the issues that he thinks are important to the people. Security, the health service, 20,000 more police is what we hear him speak about a lot. Uh, supports in social services, better education. So these are the issues, but, but Brexit will be the spoiler in all of this. Yeah. The Conservative Party has a narrower field. To the right of it, the Brexit Party could quite easily um, cost the Conservative Party votes and therefore potentially cost them seats. The Liberal Democrats are clearly for Remain. Scottish National Party will take seats from the Conservatives in Scotland. Uh, the Labour Party not doing so well in the polls. It, it, it is very hard to predict at the moment. Yeah, I'm sure. Thank you so much for that, Nick Robertson, live from us out of London. And we're going to a short break. When we come back, a deep dive into the markets as we await that Fed rate decision in a few hours' time. And later, the Boeing CEO is set to testify again after emotional day on Capitol Hill. We'll be speaking to the chairman of the House Aviation Subcommittee. Stay with First Move. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, U.S. stocks are on track for a flat to modestly higher open. Take a look at that. Tech stocks look set for the best gains. All this after stronger than expected reading on the health of U.S. economy. A preliminary uh, reading shows U.S. GDP growing an annualized rate of 1.9% in the third quarter. It was expected it would only grow by 1.6%, but that's thanks to continued strength in the U.S. consumer. Analysts were, uh, of course, hoping that the number was going to come in better than expected, and it did. But today's number is weaker than the 2% growth we saw in the second quarter. Sam Serval joins me now with his take on GDP and the Fed, and he is the chief investment strategist of U.S. equity strategy at CF 
RA. Great to have you with me, Happy Sam. To be here. Okay, so are you excited that we're at 1.9 and at 1.6? Is it, you know, it's better than expected, but is it something that we should actually be hopeful that it's not going to deteriorate further? Yes, uh, and I don't even think we have to say hopeful. Our expectation is we're going to be seeing GDP growth between the fourth quarter of 19 and the fourth quarter of 2020, anywhere from 2.2 to 2.5 percent. So things are actually going to be strengthening in the next couple of quarters and then flattening out. But is that taking another rate cut into consideration in those models that you're looking at? Yes. And our expectation is that the Fed will cut rates today by one quarter of one percent, but then they'll go on hold. No more Mm. cuts for the rest of this year. And we don't have any priced in for next year as well. Our feeling is, as we're seeing with GDP, as we'll likely see with the uh, employment data on Friday, that the economy remains solid and sustainable. So there's this thinking that perhaps the Fed is just using too many of its tools and it's not going to have any ammunition left if something does go wrong down the line. Is that a concern on your part? I think it's wise that the Fed is deciding not to use all of the arrows in its quiver because it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. Uh, This is the longest economic expansion since 1857. Um, It's just a matter of time when we do fall into recession, but our expectation is that we will not likely see it until 2021. So I know that you're talking about rotation. Stock rotation is something that you guys do and you're always uh, recalibrating. Looking at the amount of earnings that we're getting through, um, we're getting a lot of them better than expected, but some are are not really doing that well. How are you positioning yourself in the current earnings environment? Well, we're basically, we look at the market activity and remind ourselves that prices lead fundamentals. Even though Wall Street consensus estimates uh, are now calling for a minus 2.3% this quarter, which is better than the minus 4.3% seen earlier. They're borrowing a lot of growth from the fourth quarter of this year and into 2020. Expectations were for more than a 10% gain. Now it's a 9% gain. So that could soften as we head into next year. But that's simply based on what the forecasts are, based on what people know now. I think that the market is heading higher because investors expect the uh, fundamentals. GDP and earnings to improve as the quarters proceed in 2020. It's interesting because markets normally price in what the future economic environment is going to be like. And here we have sort of a reverse happening where earnings are not doing as well as we'd hoped and markets are sitting at record high on the premise that the economy is going to recover and we're going to have a lot of stimulus. I mean, is is that an interesting kind of play for you? I don't think it's a reversal. I think what it's saying is that that everybody is aware of what the forecasts are today. What they're not aware of is which direction will those forecasts take? Will they actually get weaker or will they get stronger? And I believe that higher equity prices imply that GDP and earnings growth will actually get stronger as time goes on, but it's just not being seen right now in the numbers. So how much of a risk is U.S. and China? I mean, we've been going to and fro. Sometimes we're very close to a deal and then nothing materializes. So just does it still create a lot of uncertainty? Was it just something that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? Well, it's on the back burner right now the way Brexit is, but I think that uh, global trade is the the fulcrum of the uh, the seesaw, that if the optimism is there, then prices go up. If optimism is down, then the prices recede, mainly because it's a cascading effect. If we have global trade problems, then that will hurt our earnings growth because a good 
50% of revenues within the S&P 500 come from overseas operations. And if you have lower earnings, then you have lower PE multiples, you have lower prices. Very quickly, are you looking at what bond yields are doing and how important is that for you in your it's important from a uh, sentiment perspective. We are out of the inverted yield curve scenario, which is a positive. But the dividend yield on the S&P 500 still exceeds the yield on the 10-year note. And since 1953, whenever that has happened, the market was up a median of 18% 12 months later. Fantastic, Sam. Thank you very much for joining us. Okay, so we'll have the opening bell right after the short break. Don't you go anywhere. live from the New York Stock Exchange. That was the sound of the opening bell here on Wall Street. Let's take a look to see how markets are faring as we kick off trade this Wednesday, mostly uh, on a flat start, flat bias. Uh, they're trying to digest some um, better than expected US GDP and employment data that came through. Remember, uh, third quarter GDP came out at 1.9%, much better than people had expected. 1.6% is what people were uh, looking at. And of course, we've got the federal rate decision later uh, today that comes out in less than five hours. The U.S. Central Bank is expected to cut rates for a third time this year, but the Fed could signal a pause in the rate-cutting cycle going forward. Uh, so it's definitely one to watch. Now, another big story playing out. Boeing CEO Dennis Millenberg is back on Capitol Hill uh, today after being grilled by lawmakers uh, in yesterday's session and confronted by grieving family members as well. More than a dozen sat behind Millenberg yesterday holding large pictures of loved ones lost in 737 Max crashes. Millenberg acknowledged he was aware of internal emails and instant messages that raised concerns about the 737 MAX before the second crash. In a fiery exchange, one Democrat senator told the Boeing CEO there's no way that he would board a 737. Take a listen. I would walk before I was to get on a 737 MAX. I would walk. There's no way. All right, so joining me now, we're joined by Congressman Rick Larson, Chairman of the U.S. House Aviation Subcommittee. Congressman, really good to have you on. I'd like to get a sense from you after hearing Dallas uh, Mullenberg yesterday. In terms of the, the messaging that you heard, do you feel we're making progress in this inquiry? And what do you think the outcome is going to be? Well, I think... Uh our committee is opening a new stage of our own investigation with the Boeing CEO coming to uh, testify before us and answer our questions. Uh, I think the outcome uh, isn't exactly clear, but I do think we're headed towards uh, looking at how the FAA certifies airplanes. I think the way the FAA certifies airplanes is in need of repair. Uh, I think that we've seen uh, from the Indonesian report, the uh, FAA's own report for the Joint Authorities Technical Review, the NTSB uh, recommendations, all pointing towards needed changes in how we certify airplanes in the United States. That um, in your home state, uh, in Washington, Boeing has the largest facility of its kind there. How is that impacting people in Washington state? And and what is the messaging that you're getting from people that have worked on the Boeing 737? 
Yeah, it's a real important question. I represent more Boeing employees than any member of Congress, and I can tell you uh, two things. One, they're very proud of the product they design, assemble, and build, and they're also very distraught that this product contributed to the deaths of 346 uh, innocent uh, people. You know, we have a very good economy in the Pacific Northwest, uh, but we're known for our gray clouds and rain and and this 737 uh, MAX, uh, these crashes have put another set of gray clouds and rain over the feeling about how we feel about the local economy. We are really um, unsure where this is headed, but we have to think safety first as we move forward in this investigation. That has to be our number one priority. Absolutely. Look, we heard from Dennis Millenberg yesterday um, admitting to knowing about messages, admitting to knowing about issues before the second crash. Is there a sense that there was deception and and uh, deceiving that came through that came through from the very top within Boeing? And if that is the case, what kind of outcome should we actually be seeing here apart from just, you know, executives losing their jobs? We opened our investigation in March of this year uh, on the House uh, Committee on Transportation Infrastructure, and we have received thousands of documents uh, from Boeing, and we need to receive more from them and more from the uh, Federal Aviation Administration. We still have a lot of information gaps uh, that we're trying to fill. So to answer your, I don't have an answer to your question uh, right now. Uh, Our focus has been on uh, uh, the, the, the legislative, the statutory framework, are we giving too much authority to the FAA to give too much authority uh, to, the, uh, to the industry in certifying airplanes? And that's what we're looking at. So how do you see the regulatory environment playing out? Because, you know, just weeks before the crash, Boeing was lobbying to get the FAA to rubber stamp, um, uh, you know, manufacturing designs and approvals and almost handing more responsibility to the manufacturer as opposed to the regulator. And here we are today saying, well, we need to see an overhaul and we don't even know what that's going to look like. Well, that's why we're doing this investigation. I think uh, as we move through this investigation, we'll come up with a more clear definition of what kind of changes uh, we need. For instance, t- today's hearing, uh, I expect to be asking Mr. Mullenberg questions uh, based on his testimony yesterday. He said mistakes were made at Boeing. Well, I want to know who made those mistakes. Yeah. Why were those mistakes made? Who, who did they report to? All, that, all those answers can point us in a more firm direction about the kind of changes that we need to make to ensure that always that the U.S. aviation system remains the safest. What's also interesting here is it's about uh, safety and it is also about making sure that people feel that they can get on a plane and that everybody has done their job in the entire value chain. Is the Boeing 737 going to fly again? Do you think we're close to that? A lot of airlines have lost business because of it and of course customers are, are not feeling hopeful at this point in time and they don't feel safe either. Yeah, a lot of the customers, at least in the U.S., are delaying uh, putting the uh, MAX into service. They're planning not until next year. The FAA has to make a decision about uh, whether or not to return the plane to service. Uh, Boeing hasn't yet given the FAA the full package uh, that the FAA needs to evaluate. But it's going to be an FAA decision. But safety has to be the timeline. You can't. We cannot point to a date on a calendar, nor should we. Safety has to be the only timeline the FAA uses to make a determination about return to service. Yeah, Congressman, and we know that when the first uh, crash happened, Boeing was quick to blame pilots that, you know, they said weren't trained adequately. At the end of the day, it's almost like they wanted to shift blame. Do you feel that Boeing is starting to take responsibility for this? 
How do you think Boeing is taking some, uh, some of the responsibility uh, for this? And and, uh, it, and it should. As a company, it should. Uh, the safety culture is under question. Uh, that's, I think, why Boeing changed their own safety organization and engineering organization within the company. Uh, but I also note that, um, uh, as we saw in the uh, Indonesian investigation, as, and as we've seen in many types of ac uh, uh, accidents, uh, when our own NTSB does an investigation, they find there are a variety of factors that contribute to these accidents. Sometimes these accidents aren't as tragic as, as we saw with the MAX crashes, but especially when they're as tragic as these, we need to be sure that we look at all the contributing factors and try to make changes to those, uh, to those factors to ensure the longer-term safety of aviation. Yeah. Thank you very much, Congressman. Great to have you on the show. Much appreciated for your insights. That was yeah. Congressman Rick Larson, Chairman of the U.S. House Aviation Subcommittee. All right, so now time to take a look at our global movers today. General Electric shares are sitting up around 9%. The troubled manufacturing giant is reporting better than expected third quarter earnings and revenues. It is also raising its 2019 cash flow guidance. Despite the encouraging numbers, GE's CEO says there's still more work to be done to turn the company around. Shares of toy maker Mattel are up around 20%. The company has reported better than expected earnings and revenues. It has also finished up an internal review of its accounting practices after a whistleblower complaint. Now the company's CFO will leave the company as a result. Shares of Yum brands are tumbling 9%. The parent company of Taco Bell, KFC and Pizza Hut is reporting profits that missed expectations by a wide margin. Revenues also came in light. Alright, so shares of Tupperware are down by over 20%. The household products company is reporting weaker than expected earnings and guidance. It says sales are under pressure in Brazil and China as well as in North America. So no shortage of big names uh, at the so-called Davos in the desert after the, yeah, last year's boycott, in fact. And we'll be bringing you an update right after the short break. Stay with us. guests from the U.S. have taken to the stage in Riyadh to tout Saudi Arabia's economic potential and its forum is known as Davos in the Desert. That continues. This is where we find our John Defterios. Uh, John, look, we know there was a boycott last year, a sea change this year. Now we're talking about economic potential. What are you hearing? Well, you know, this is a clear strategy, I think, Eleni, to uh, restart investment and revive the brand of the Vision 2030 by the Crown Prince, uh, which stalled, arguably, because of Jamal Khashoggi and even going back to the arrest here at the Ritz-Carlton uh, in 2017 after the first future investment initiative. But they did get a, a huge helping hand with high-profile visits by Jared Kushner, who took to the stage last night, and Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary, today. Now, it was interesting. Mnuchin was only on the stage for maybe five minutes, but it was clearly long enough for him to voice the support for the reform package and encourage them to go even further, Mohammed bin Salman. Let's take a listen. I think the potential role that Saudi can play in the the regional hub of the economy is very important. And, and I think His Highness the Crown Princess's execution of this transformation uh, will be the critical vision on getting that done. So I, I think the opportunity is here and really now it's important to provide a roadmap and specifics for U.S. investment and others. No need for others, really just plenty of U.S. investment. 
Mnuchin uh, stressing the need for the U.S. players to come into play here. Uh, let's take a look at the, the venue because we just had the African panel wrap up. Uh, so there was a big African contingent. But I'm told that of 80 percent of the people attending, it was the United States, uh, Europe and Asia with half coming from the U.S. themselves. So a very large presence on the ground. Wall Street widely represented here. I, I approached at least 10 of the CEOs, either by email or directly on the ground. Uh, nobody wanted to go public. So it is a support on the ground for Saudi Arabia, but not banging the drum uh, internationally. They're letting the deals do the talking. Ministry of Investment said $15 billion of deals, Eleni. Uh, uh, I saw concretely about a fifth of that, $3 billion in transactions. But that equals the foreign direct investment in 2018, so not bad. The biggest deal of all, though, didn't get announced at the FII. That's Aramco. We may get a very clear indication early next week what the roadmap is to the end of the year, whether it's a Riyadh listing and then going to Asia thereafter in 2020. John, thank you very much uh, for that. Much appreciated. John Defteros in Riyadh for us. Now, it's a critical time for the Indian banking sector with the country's economy growing at its weakest pace in six years. Credit growth has dropped to its lowest level in nearly two years as the consumption slowdown puts a drag on demand. That's leading to warnings of a slowdown in retail lending in the coming year. Add to that slowing growth, high debt levels and corruption. And you can see there's a lot to contend with. Rajneesh Kumar is the chairman of the State Bank of India and the incoming chairman of the Indian Banks Association. I asked him if he was concerned about the World Bank downgrading India's growth this year to 6%. India, the target has been that we have to grow at least 8% in Japan. So if it is benchmarked against 8%, then we are not doing as well. But I think it is more to do with the lot of changes which came in the Indian economy in the last three, four years. A combination of all the factors around introduction of many reforms which are very far-reaching in nature. So Indian economy is undergoing that transition. Comments uh, from IMF chief economist that next year we could come back to 7%. And that means that thereafter it can grow further. Okay, so I mean, in terms of the way that it impacts the banking sector, if you've got low growth, that could mean corporate defaults, that means, uh, you know, retail defaults, and the banking sector is going through a transition in itself. Are you in a banking crisis? Because that's what seems to be going on at the moment. I don't call it a banking crisis because... Bad debt crisis? No, no, no. Bad no. debt crisis? Bank debt crisis we had in 2017 and 18. Consistently, the non-performing loans of the banking system are coming down. What would have been expected is that the decline in the NPLs could have been faster, but because of the certain developments, it has not come down as fast as I would have expected it to be. But the situation around NPLs or defaults, it peaked in 2018. March 18 was the first year and uh, for my own bank and from the banking system, the graph is downwards. We're also hearing, I mean, look, you're, you're the new chairman of the Indian Banks Association, so you're basically the representative body for the banking industry there. We're hearing of fraud. We're hearing about a liquidity crunch. We're hearing people taking money out because they're worried about banks folding. 
What is going on right now in terms of that? Uh, you seem to have a very pessimistic view of the I, things. I'm asking you to clarify for me, <laughs> because this is the interesting thing, right? I mean, if you're hearing these headlines coming through, and if there's a run on the banks, that then creates a systemic problem within the country. There has been no run on any banks so far. There was a default by one of the cooperative banks, yeah. and uh, that was unfortunate, but cooperative banking system in the country, it has been relatively weak. And uh, multiple regulators are there, so that has its own problems. But otherwise, as far as the banking system in the country is concerned, there have never been any failures to be allowed as far as the scheduled commercial banks are concerned. And about the frauds, the credit-related fraud, what we have to also understand that there is a double counting. We count them as NPL and because there is some diversion of funds by some of the promoters, so that gets classified as fraud also. So as far as the PNL is concerned, it does not impact you as much. But otherwise, uh, it does cause concern that uh, the fraud amount is increasing and uh, where it becomes a big headline. But the fact is that we should not double count it. All right, well, still ahead, the fangs are out in force on this day. Before Halloween, popular fangs, stocks, Apple and Facebook report after the closing bell. Lots for investors to sink their teeth into. Don't go anywhere. So welcome back. Apple shares are flat in early trading today. All this ahead of the company's eagerly awaited earnings report. It comes out after the closing bell. Uh, and Apple shares, as you can see, flat, almost like positive bias. Um, they've written, risen, though, 50% year to date and are sitting near all-time highs. Shares of Facebook, in the meantime, are lower in early trading, too. The social media giant is also out with profits later on after the closing bell. It agreed to pay a uh, $645,000 fine to the UK government today in the Cambridge Analytica user data scandal. It's down four tenths of a percent. Ivan Feinstein is the chief investment officer at Tigris Financial Partners. He joins me now. The FANG stocks, right? So Facebook, you've got Apple that you're expecting. Uh, you, we're talking about Google and Alphabet uh, offline as well. What are your favorites within the tech space at the moment? Because everyone seems to have a little bit of problems coming to the fore. Of the big names, I like in, in the FANG names, I like them all but Netflix. So I like Facebook, I like Apple, I like Google. So, so let's talk about Facebook. I mean, we've got results coming out later. They're dealing with so many issues leading up to the elections. Um, we've been hearing from Mark Zuckerberg about whether they should allow political ads online as well. I mean, is that going to have a fundamental impact in the way that you see this as an investment stock? Well, no matter what, more controversy, if you will, more information, more viewership will continue to will drive more of their members to stay on Facebook. It's all about user engagement. The more the users engaged, the more potentially they can click on ads. And the fact that they have such a massive 
user base of over 2.7 billion users globally. It's where advertisers want to be. So more engagement leads to more ad revenue. And even through all of the controversies, they continue to gain members and gain advertisers. So that is their business model. And Apple, I mean, they're coming up with a streaming service, lots happening there. Stock is up incredibly by, you know, year-to-date numbers if we look at that. What is, do you think it's looking very expensive? You're not in Apple already. Would you hold? Would you sell? I, I continue to say you want to buy Apple on any dip. It is a very important and very well-liked company. It has had a good run-up, so I think that the results today, tonight, will be you know, better than expected because that they have had a huge increase, surprising increase in demand for the new iPhone 11, where people thought that the demand was fading. It's not fading, it's increasing. And they're continuing to shift this service revenue initiative, which includes the launch of their streaming service on Friday. It's but, a very competitive uh, space, however. Yes, but, um, and well, I think in streaming, the winner is going to be Disney because content is king and Disney is the king of content. And Disney Plus is giving you an incredible amount yeah. of content for only $7. Is that, why, is that why you don't like Netflix at this point in time? Yes, because it is the, the, the growth is for Netflix to lose. The multiple is not yeah. going to be supported. They, they owned the game for a long time, but now you got four big competitors. You got Amazon Prime, yeah. but you got. Uh, Apple TV Plus, Disney Plus, and yesterday, AT&T formally announced the launch of HBO Max, which will be a $15 a month direct-to-consumer streaming service. So Alphabet also out with results this week. What did you make of the numbers? I thought they were still very good. I like companies. They beat on revenue. They missed on earnings because they're investing in the business. And I like, like it initially. Well, you I like when companies yeah. invest in making their company better. And that's what they consistently do. And if you've looked in, historically, when they invested in marketing, the stock sold off. It came back and went higher. When they invested in hiring more people, the stock sold off and it came back higher. Here they're investing in their cloud infrastructure, and I think that will drive further gains in the stock. Someone tells me that you're the only person that has a buy on a company we haven't heard of in a while, Garmin. Yes. Why? Very quickly. They are one of the most clever and innovative companies, yet people don't understand them. They just announced an incredible new product today, a completely auto autonomous emergency airplane landing system. I mean, Great that alone stuff. is incredible. Thank you, sir. Great to have you uh, with me. Thanks so very much for joining us on First Move. I'm Eleni Jokos, live from the New York Stock Exchange. Cheers for now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.